Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Charlotte Reader's Podcast is part of the Queen City Podcast Network, a collection of locally-based, locally-produced, locally-focused podcasts that you can take anywhere and listen to at your own pace. We're grateful to our Season 3 sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, for helping local authors and those who visit the Queen City give voice to their written words. Park Road Books is the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, with a welcoming staff ready to help you find your next great read. The store is right there in Park Road Shopping Center, with the big blue letters. Charlotte Mecklenburg Library serves as an essential connector of a thriving community of readers, leaders, and learners. With 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence, their mission is to improve lives and build a strong community. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. It's a welcoming space for members who like to collaborate and be creative. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Mark DeCastric, author of 18 novels, including two mystery series and a number of short stories, too. Mark is well-versed in the mystery genre and shares his years of knowledge about what makes for a good mystery. He reads from the most recent book in his Bearing Berry mystery series and his Sam Blackman mystery series, and he also reads a creative nonfiction piece set on a farm of his youth near the Charlotte airport that involves a farmer joining the circus. We start first with Mark reading from Chapter 1 of Secret Undertaking, a bearing berry mystery. I want you to put me in jail. Archie Donovan Jr. sported a wide smile as he made the request. I stared at him in disbelief. What? The two of us sat in the back booth of the Cardinal Cafe where Archie had urgently summoned me for a mid-morning cup of coffee. He'd walked from his insurance office and I strolled the few blocks from our funeral home, wondering with each step what harebrained scheme he would propose. It looked like I wasn't going to be disappointed. Yes, Barry, you're a deputy sheriff. Part-time. Well, it's still official when you're on duty. I'm not now. Archie shook his head. I don't want you to arrest me now. It'll be at the parade. I slid farther back in the booth, glancing around to see if anyone was overhearing our ridiculous conversation. Archie, you want to give me more background before I say no? Archie and I had known each other since grade school, and in those years, we'd been as compatible as oil and water. In junior high, Archie had dubbed me Barry and Barry because my family lived in Gainsborough's one and only funeral home. The name had stuck through high school, and even today, a former classmate might rib me in public. In short, Archie could push all my buttons without even trying. Now that we were both in our mid-30s, I'd come to realize he wasn't mean. He was just tone-deaf to the impact of what he said. That never stopped him from talking. I leaned across the table. 
Now, he said, you support the Boys Club and Girls Club of Gainsborough, right? Yes. I recognized his strategy of getting me to start saying yes before the poison pill question was sprung. And you agree that they help mold young lives so that the kids don't wind up in your jail? Of course, just get to the point. I want to raise money to help them through the JC's float in the Apple Festival Parade. By being arrested? Archie's eyes gleamed. By being bailed out? Everyone thinks it's a great idea. I restrained myself from asking who everyone might be. Archie took a sip of coffee and then pushed the cup aside. All right, let me start over. I'm chairman of the JC's charity committee that's responsible for raising money. You know, like the annual haunted house. Bad example, I said. One year at Archie's insistence, I'd lent the JC's a casket for the Halloween fundraiser, only to have a man murdered in it. He shrugged. Well, then not like it. Everything will be out in the open. The float will feature kids from the boys and girls clubs, and I'll be on it, standing in a mock jail, wearing one of those old-timey striped prison suits. The lettering on the float will say, Free Archie and help our kids. He spread his hands as if the beauty of his proposal was now self-evident. I get it. People raise your bail for charity. How much? $10,000. I whistled softly. I don't know, Archie. That's a lot of money. How long can you stay on the float? Just for the parade, then I'll go to your jail. I'll post pictures on Facebook. I bet Melissa Bigham and the Vista will want to follow my progress. Every morning the paper could run an update. His eyes brightened even more. Maybe list donors and corporate sponsors. How much will the funeral home kick in? It's great publicity. I signaled time out. None of this is my call. You can do what you want with your float, but the jail's another matter. Tommy Lee has say over that, not me. But the sheriff listens to you, and he's always doing outreach programs. It's a win-win, a no-brainer. Both expressions grated on my ears. Win-win reduced everything to a game, and no-brainer meant some decision was being made by someone without a brain. I took the easier exit I could find. All right, I'll ask Tommy Lee, but no promises. I made a show of looking at my watch. Sorry, I've got to go. Appointment at 11. Archie's smile vanished. Someone die? No. The smile returned. Good. I was afraid it was one of my policyholders. When they die, they stop paying their premiums. I wondered how much money could be raised to keep Archie in jail. Arthur Martin Castro was born in Hendersonville, North Carolina, near Asheville, and went straight from the hospital to the funeral home, where his father was the funeral director and the family lived upstairs. The unusual setting sparked his popular Barry Clayton series, Burying Barry, and launched his mystery writing career. His novels have received starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Library Journal, and Booklist. The Chicago Tribune wrote, As important and as impressive as the author's narrative skills are, the subtle ways he captures the geography, both physical and human, of a unique part of the American South. Mark is a veteran of the broadcast and film production business. In Washington, D.C., he directed numerous news and public affairs programs and received an Emmy Award for his documentary film work. His years in Washington inspired two D.C. thrillers, one involving a terrorist plot against the Federal Reserve and the other a winner-take-all quest for artificial intelligence. Mark lives in Charlotte, but he and his wife Linda can be often found in the North Carolina mountains or the nation's capital.
Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, so Bering Barry. I mean, where do you get a title like that? <laughs> you just you think about what would you hate to be called if your dad owned a funeral home and you were in junior high? <laughs> yeah, and you did. Did you have some connection to the funeral home business too? I did. Yeah. Uh, I uh, was born in Hendersonville, North Carolina, and I went straight from the hospital to the funeral home because my dad was the <laughs> funeral director, and we. We lived upstairs. Uh, I got a short story about that. If you got us, yeah, well, not many it. people can say they went straight from the hospital to the funeral home yeah. and lived to tell about it. You right? cut everything out yeah. in between. Yeah. Uh, no, I guess I was about three, and uh, they had a visitation. And usually, when visitations happened, I was locked upstairs with my mom. And this particular even this particular evening, I had um, escaped somehow and uh, wandered downstairs. And I remember everybody was really tall and I wondered why they were in my house and and then I saw the uh, casket on a pedestal and uh, I remember, and you're, you're I remember how, that you're how, how about enough? three okay a little three <laughs> and then about uh, ten minutes later my mom was summoned upstairs from upstairs to come and pull me out of the visitation because I'd crawled up behind the casket and was singing so long it's been good to know you <laughs> And the, so, the the family was not amused, and they probably obviously weren't music lovers if they uh, objected yeah. to my uh, contribution. Yeah, well, you uh, you probably got some groundedness there from that experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you've been a, a mystery writer um, for many years. How long now? First book, uh, the Barry Clayton series, was my first series, and that came out in 2003. So heading, heading into 16 years now. So about 18 novels, right? You've got two mystery. We're going to talk about both series today, um, and you, you've also done some some thriller work too. Correct. Yeah, yeah, two things that are set up in D.C. Yeah, as and, well as North Carolina, and some short stories, right? That's so, right. And you've been teaching, so you're just all into this stuff, right? <laughs> Uh, well, back to Bering Barry for just a second. Through your own personal experience, having, you know, been raised, uh, and it's hard to say raised in a funeral home, you know? <laughs> but uh, that must have rubbed off on you. Obviously, it did if you had your first novel sort of with a character, you know, going by the name of Bering Barry. Yeah. So why? I mean, they say write what you know. You did. You wrote a little bit about what you knew, right? It was. It was actually kind of more like write what I might have known because yeah. uh, not too long after that. Uh, audition for America's Got Talent when I was singing behind the casket. Uh, <laughs> my dad changed professions, and, and oh. we left the funeral business. You ran him out of the business. I, did. <laughs> I think I did. And, yeah. I, and I thought, though, when I started to, to think about writing a mystery, uh, you either want to start out of character or plot. And, uh, and I thought, you know, a funeral director in a small mountain town would be an interesting character to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a funeral home in a small place is... Uh, an important institution, obviously, and it connects people generation to generation, and and stories of the of the community are told in eulogies and uh, and visitations and things like that. And so I thought, I think that's what I'll try to develop and see whether that works or not. So in in the first book, um, which I think is a dangerous undertaking, uh, your very first in that series, was Barry also uh, working for the sheriff's department then, or did that develop over time? It more developed over time. Okay. Uh, he had been in law enforcement in Charlotte. Uh, mm, I picked okay. him and he was studying criminal justice at UNC Charlotte and his uh, dad developed early onset Alzheimer's and that was the reason he had to come back and help run the family business but his heart was in law enforcement and so that made him uh, kind of, uh, he and the sheriff of the county uh, have a, a relationship with each other because the sheriff respects what Barry has done and kind of brings him on as a part-time deputy and so that's 
that's how he winds up with a foot in uh, the funeral business and a foot in law enforcement in his small town of Gainesboro. You got you got a good old uh, southern name there for the sheriff, Tommy Lee. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 And uh, so the the writing started with. Barry, and uh, of course, you put it in a setting, a funeral home, and then you're solving murders, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then in this book that you just uh, read from, the, the most recent novel, you got this character, Archie. Talk, talk about it, because I get this vision of Archie kind of like Don Knotts, you know, and uh, is, is he a bit like this character? <laughs> he is. He, I mean, he's, he's um, you know. And as, I'm talking about from Mayberry and working for Andy Griffith, yeah, the, the deputy sheriff. And he thinks he's, he's, he thinks he's smarter than he is. His heart's kind of in the right place, but if there's a way to screw something up, he will he will do it. And, uh, and so he's always coming up with some sort of scheme that uh, in several of the books that uh, – Barry either has to straighten out or try not to fall victim to. And one of the things, when I read this book, um, I noticed that you infuse humor uh, into this book and your other book, Hidden Scars as well, but more actually more in Barry, I think, than, than in uh, the Sam Blackman That's series. true, that's true. T- tell us about how you, um, the humor helps to balance what else is going on in a, in a mystery where people are dying. Well, you know, You've got uh, the seriousness of a funeral home and deaths that happen and, and uh, grief that happens, but uh, you need both for pacing and I think just for audience involvement. You know, life is funny uh, mm-hmm. as well as tragic. And uh, and let's face it, Landis, funeral begins with fun. You know, if you think <laughs> of it that that way. So I do like to look at situations and have uh, see the humor in it when it's there. Try to be respectful mm-hmm. when it's not. And also uh, have the dialogue, have a certain degree of banter that uh, mm-hmm. uh, right. especially Barry and Sheriff Tommy Lee can always pick at each other in a good-natured, mm-hmm. humorous way mm-hmm. like two, two colleagues would. All right, so we got Barry, we got the sheriff, we got uh, Archie. Uh, tell us a bit about the plot in this book, you just, uh, this opening you just read from. Well, you know, when you think of a small town and you've got to uh, have a murder happen, there's only so many circumstances that would crop up um i remember the old uh, murder she wrote jessica fletcher you would never want to live in her town because you got stood <laughs> beside her you were dead in the first 20 minutes so exactly so sometimes you have to think about what from the outside could come in mm-hmm. to the town could big time crime come into a small community and so i was doing some um, internet research on various crimes that were happening in rural areas and i came across uh, fraud in the uh, food stamp industry Mm -hmm. the supplemental nutrition Mm -hmm. program and i thought that not only happened in rural counties but also in uh, large cities detroit new york trenton that all had a certain uh, impact by that it's low i don't want to mischaracterize what the food stamp fraud is but it's still even though it's a low percentage we're still talking some dollars so i thought that would be an interesting thing to happen in my town of gainsborough in my uh, fictional town of gainsborough Mm -hmm. And so uh, I also thought, how does big crime come into a community? And that led me to think the witness protection program. Got to have you know, the, and, fed, the feds in there somehow. Absolutely. Right? And then you got a you know, <laughs> jurisdictional problem over who has a authority. But, right. So I went to uh, call the marshal's office because they, U.S. marshals run the— And they the, told you everything, right? Yeah. They told me. <laughs> the, first of all, they told me uh-huh. to call Washington. I called yeah. locally. Seriously? In, in the state. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they said, call Washington. So I— <laughs> I get the public so information. Call this eight hundred number. 
uh, you know, under Mar, you know, Dow Marshall, help Marshall, and uh, and uh, I posed my questions like, you know, how if you go into the witness protection program, what happens to your assets? What happens to your house? What happens mm-hmm. to your insurance policies? Mm-hmm. Your bank accounts? And uh, they said they would get back to me. They would go ask what they could tell mm-hmm. me. And, and uh, the woman came back, called me later that afternoon, and said, um, we can neither confirm nor deny <laughs> any yeah. of the things you've asked. And, yeah. and I thought, uh-oh, now I'm stuck because I'm not going to be able to get any legitimate you know, reference yeah. or uh, connections to, to, to my research. And then it dawned on me, well, if they can neither confirm nor deny, you, you, I can write it. Yeah, it's fiction, right? That's true. So, <laughs> you can make it up. So yeah. I kind of made it the way I thought it would be and what they could do. And and they also told me, he said, uh, we can neither confirm nor deny, but there is a book written by the uh, agent who founded the Witness Protection Program called WITSEC that uh, we can't say whether some of those uh, procedures are still in place or not, but you may find it helpful. So they, they guided me to a source that uh, – that I, that I found fascinating to read. All right, we're gonna. Uh, have, I'm gonna have you read one more little segment here from uh, Bering Barry's uh, secret undertaking, uh, picking up on page 41 of the book. And uh, I think Archie's uh, still in the cell at this point, but this time he's kind of there as an undercover deputy dog, so to speak. Yeah. A, wa- a wannabe. Uh, he actually was on the float, and uh, and there was a kind of a deranged individual that came out with a weapon and uh, wounded the Secretary of, uh, of Commerce, who was the, uh, or Agriculture rather, who was the marshal for the parade, and Barry's uncle was in, intercepted him. He's in critical condition. And the man's son, who was killed in this attempt that he made, uh, was arrested for his disorderly contact, conduct when his uh, dad was, uh, was dead and the, and the expected uh, assailant. And so he was put in jail and happened to be put in jail beside Archie, who's in there trying to raise money for the charity. So <laughs> okay, take this, it away. This picks up with uh, Barry has just walked down to tr- because he was told that Archie wanted to talk to him. So Archie was sitting on the cot in his cell. His laptop was open beside him. On the floor was a takeout bag from the Cardinal Cafe. The door was unlocked. For a prisoner, he seemed to have plenty of comforts. From his worried look, I knew something was bothering him. How are the donations going? He closed the laptop and stood. Not so good, he whispered. I think the shooting yesterday overshadowed the publicity, so I'm writing all my clients, reminding them where I am. Sort of a blog. I call it Letters from a Gainsborough Jail. I couldn't stifle a laugh. (laughs) Archie, you're not Martin Luther King, Jr. He held a finger to his lips. Not so loud, I know, but I'm in prison for my cause. Is that why you wanted to see me? He stepped closer and jerked his head toward the near wall. No, he whispered. It's the man in the next cell. The deputies call him Sonny. Yeah, what about him? Well, he kept me up late last night with his moaning, and then he got sick. I heard him puking, and I asked if he was all right. What did he say? That he was a dead man. They killed Rufus, and he would be next. I felt a tingle in my neck at the possibility that Archie could have learned something significant. Did he say who they were? No, he said he didn't know. But Rufus had known. He was part of them. And now with what his daddy had done, they'd be coming after him. I figured the daddy had to be Toby McKay. What did you say? I told him I could help him, that I knew people. What people? Well, you. But I didn't use your name. 
I didn't even say they were police, just that I had influence and could provide protection. Archie, you're an insurance salesman. You're not Elliot Ness. Again, Archie's finger went to his lips. He'll hear you. I didn't give him my real name. What name did you give him? Archie reddened. The first one that popped into my mind, Brad Pitt. And he bought that? I told him I wasn't the movie star. You actually think he needed clarification? He didn't see me, at least not till Reese came and took him out a little while ago. Did he say anything? No, he just smiled and mouthed, Hi, Brad. And you've never seen him before? Nope, not before last night. He wasn't exactly a prospect, Archie grinned. Want me to pump him for information? I told him I was in for robbery. I think he was impressed. I wanted to scream, You're not Brad Pitt. You're Archie Donovan Jr., loud enough for Sonny to hear and end this ridiculous charade. But at least Sonny had talked to him, whereas Tommy Lee and I had gotten the silent treatment. Don't engage him anymore, I said, at least until I talk to Tommy Lee. Sonny will probably be cut loose pretty soon anyway. Okay, one question. What? Can I still be Brad Pitt? All right, Mark. So we got uh, we got uh, <laughs> Archie in the cell. Now, the good thing about this book, when I read it, is you don't let Archie be a doofus the whole time. He actually helps in a good way toward the end of this book, right? I mean, you know, he, he helps find these characters that are invading this small town. I felt sorry for Archie because <laughs> I've made fun of him now for about uh, out of the there's seven books in that series, and probably in about three or four of them, he's. Yeah. He's had complications come up where he didn't shine. It wasn't his most shining hour. <laughs> and I thought, it's about time he surprised all of us. So, okay, uh, good. I'm glad, I'm glad Archie did, did well in the book. Uh, all right, so we're going to shift gears now to another series that you've got. It's uh, the Sam uh, Blackman series. Correct, right? Sam Blackman. And this is set uh, in, in a real town, right? Asheville. Asheville, North, North Carolina. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where you grew up. And tell us about Sam. Well, Sam actually uh, was developed out of a story that I had heard. Uh, a friend of my dad, who was the funeral director in Brevard, he was older than my dad, but he was a, a mentor to my dad, uh, had lived all his life in that, in that small town. And I was talking to him one uh, afternoon. I stopped by to visit him, and he was probably 90 at the time. And he told me the story of when he and his father had been approached by uh, the African-American funeral director in Asheville to help uh, take a body to a family burial ground in North Georgia. And all the uh, gentlemen had in Asheville was a horse and wagon, and none mm. of the white funeral homes would help him. And so this he, became the plot of your first book in the series. This became the first yeah. plot because the, uh, uh, the Donald Lee, who was 10 at the time, and said his dad agreed to help the man, and uh, he had an old Model T truck, and they uh, were transporting the body with the uh, African-American funeral director down to the family burial ground. But in, this was in 1918, 1919, mm-hmm. and the Jim Crow laws were so strict that they couldn't stop and eat together mm-hmm. along the way. So about halfway on that journey, they stopped. It must have been someplace around Pickens, South Carolina, pulled up to a sharecropper's uh, little shack, and there was this black intergenerational family waiting for them relatives of the deceased and Donald Lee said he and his dad walked into that little cabin and they cleared out the front room and set brought the kitchen table out and set two places for lunch 
and the gentleman of the house told Donald Lee's dad, you and your son will eat first. We'll all wait out in the yard. Hmm. And then when you're finished, um, we'll, we will eat. And, and Donald Lee said his dad was upset and said, there's no need to do that. We, more of us can eat at the table or we could all eat outside. And the man told him, and said, no, you're doing a service for our family. This is the way we want to honor you. So Donald Lee said he and his dad sat down and ate their lunch by themselves while the rest of the people stood outside in the yard and waited them. Well, that story just really struck me. I mean, I was looking at the man who had been that little boy. It wasn't hearsay. I was hearing Mm -hmm. it straight from him. Mm -hmm. It was a terrible indictment of the South during that time. And then Donald Lee, um, and then there was irony, which a writer likes, because they stopped to eat there because they couldn't eat together elsewhere, and they wound up not eating together. And then uh, the last thing he told me was... uh, his dad told him, the lesson I want you to take from this is that sometimes the only thing people have to offer you is their hospitality, and you always, always take it. And so I thought, I wasn't Thomas Wolfe and I wasn't William Faulkner mm-hmm. uh, as far as being able to take that into a literary, high literary direction. But, but you, as a mystery but you, writer, you use them in your, in your mystery. Right? That's right, I did. Yeah. And, 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 and also I thought as a mystery writer, what if there was something about that coffin yeah. that they were moving yeah. that they I'm not, I'm not going to tell them what was in the coffin. Right. And so, uh, so I, didn't, I had that story. It's a good book. I read the first one, and then I read the last one in the <laughs> okay, series. Well, then you're up to date. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I needed a character because I did, didn't have a story. I just had this incident that I'd been told. And so I thought, I like my characters in conflict. Like mm-hmm. Barry Clayton has to come back and run the funeral home because his dad develops Alzheimer's. I said, I need a new main character. The conflict was he was an Iraq war veteran, Mm -hmm. lost a leg, Mm -hmm. was in the VA hospital, which is a big hospital up in Asheville, and he gets involved. And he'd been a a chief warrant officer, so he knew how to investigate crimes. And he gets caught up in this investigation. And and so I wrote the book, Blackman's Coffin. It was well-received, and my editor said, you're not done with this character. Keep writing. Yeah. And, and it wasn't a question. It was like a statement. So I stopped what I was doing and, and started the uh, Blackman series. And so now I usually alternate a Sam Blackman book with a Barry Clayton book. So how many are in the Sam Blackman series? Six. Okay. Now, I think I may have asked you this at a book signing, but how do you keep uh, Sam and Barry separate in your mind when you're writing these books? <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's a little tough. Uh, you know, one is you ever slip back into one by accident? Yeah, and try to and try to make them distinct from each other. They both yeah. have a sense of humor. Sam is a little darker just because okay. of his war experience. Uh, he winds up uh, going into partnership both uh, personally, as uh, his his relationship with uh, Nikayla Robertson. Yeah, and he has a different sidekick than Barry. Whereas Barry has Barney Fife. You know, right. he has right. a competent sidekick that he right. has a romantic relationship with right, right. and that developed uh, I didn't have that happening at first but when we continued the series uh, she's African-American so we have an interracial couple mm-hmm. all the things that they they face and uh, and usually what happens in the Blackman book is something in Asheville or the region's history comes to light that causes a crime in the present so we we learn something about the, the mountains and the history of the mountains and the cities up there at the same time as we're solving a present-day crime. So they're right. fun. They're fun to ride. They're fun to research. All right. Before the break here, let's, uh, let's, let's do what uh, all good uh, mysteries do. Let's start uh, with Chapter 1 and, uh, and see what happens 
which typically usually happens early on in a <laughs> in a mystery at the end of chapter one. And this is uh, from the book Hidden Scars, which is the, the, the most recent uh, Sam Blackman book. My partner, Nikayla Robertson, had taken a long weekend in Charleston with the women in her book club for the annual retreat they called Reading Between the Wines. The mid-March rates kept the hotel price down, but the abundance of restaurants and shops guaranteed the money they saved was still spent in the antebellum city. Left alone in Asheville to run the Blackman and Robertson Detective Agency, I'd goofed off Friday through Monday, not even bothering to come to the office. With Nikayla's return merely hours away, I decided I'd better make an appearance, and so I'd worked for almost an hour, sorting through unsolicited catalogs, shuffling a few papers, and forwarding emails to prove Sam Blackman was on the job. Satisfied that all was under control, I made the executive decision to call it a day. I'd grab an early lunch at Lexington Avenue Brewery, swing by Asheville Wine Market for one of their recommended specials, and then wait for Nikayla at her West Asheville bungalow. I hoped her absence, leaving me alone for four and a half days, would lead to a romantic home-cooked dinner and I'd stop by my apartment to pick up some clean clothes in hopes that dinner would be followed by the invitation for an overnight reunion. She could even pillow talk the nuances of her book club discussions, a surefire sedative. As I opened the hallway door, the office phone rang. I was tempted to bolt for the elevator and let the voicemail catch whatever charity or robocall wanted money, but the message would leave a timestamp that could undercut my slaving at the office story. I hurried to my desk and snatched the receiver from the cradle. Blackman and Robertson, Sam Blackman speaking. Sam, is that you? The voice cracked and warbled. I recognized it immediately. Yes, Captain. Good. I thought you were one of those damn machines. Sometimes I start talking thinking a real person answered. It's me in the flesh. Well, I've got a case for you, if you're not too busy. Other than my plans for lunch and then dinner with Nikayla, the rest of my life was wide open. I could probably squeeze in a new case, especially for you. Actually, it's for a friend, Violet Baker. I don't think I know her. One of the new residents, only 80. If I were 10 years younger, I'd make a move on her. Captain was just short of 95, and I'm sure if he wanted to make a move on young Violet, his age wouldn't stop him. What's her case? I don't know the details. I thought it better if you and Nikayla talked to her in person. Nikayla's out of town, but we'd be happy to meet with her. Good. I told her we could count on you. Come for a late lunch. You can brief Nikayla when she gets back. I glanced at my watch. 11.15. You mean like uh, 2 o'clock? We were thinking 12.30. The crowd will be thinning by then, and today's Make Your Own Sunday on Tuesday. Half the damn residents are already lined up at the dining room door. The vision of a burger and pint of porter morphed into a congealed salad and sweet tea. Okay, Captain, I'll see you outside the dining room at 12.30. Thanks, Sam. I'm sure just talking to you will be a comfort for Violet. And you have no idea why she wants to hire a detective. A few seconds of silence greeted my question. Then Captain said, Didn't I tell you? She thinks her brother's been murdered. All right, body on uh, page three. Isn't that right. Isn't that kill them early. <laughs> kill, kill them early and start start the mystery off. Okay, it, and is that pretty much what a mystery does? I mean, you got a 
You got to have a body in the first couple of chapters. Something's got to happen to either show the complications that are about to occur or that the stakes are high. You know, mm-hmm. it, it may not be a murder on on page one, but uh, something's got to got to jumpstart the story fairly quickly because people have and with a mystery and a thriller, you have expectations that right. you're going to go on a on a joy ride or a uh, conflict is going to arise, you know, very quickly in the story. All right. Well, Mark, you uh, you do more than just uh, try to solve the mystery of the murder in your uh, in your books. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that aspect of uh, of your mysteries, uh, how you work the mysteries of the past into the mysteries of the present. We're also going to do the author to author segment and uh, talk a little mystery writing. All right. So, Sounds great. I'll uh, be right. here. Okay. Hey, listeners. I recently caught up with Randall Jones about a publication that ought to be of interest to readers and writers. Randall is an author who appeared in season two of the podcast. He's a history writer who read stories about the Battle of Kings Mountain and Daniel Boone. He's also the editor of the Personal Essay Publishing Project, whose latest release for 2019 is Exploring. Randall, what will we find within the pages of Exploring? Thank you, Landis. Exploring is a collection of true personal short stories from writers sharing their experiences of discoveries, challenges, and adventure. No story is longer than 800 words, and telling a story succinctly with power and punch is the challenge for getting into this anthology because that takes good writing. How do these essays fit with the theme of Daniel Boone's life? Well, this year is the 250th anniversary of Daniel Boone's first excursion through the Cumberland Gap in 1769. It's a turning point in America's story. Boone left from his home in North Carolina, and for the next two years, he was exploring Kentucky, making discoveries, facing challenges, and having an adventure. How many writers, and where do they come from? Exploring includes 45 stories from 39 writers, mostly from or connected to North Carolina and Kentucky. Randall, will there be another anthology next year? Yes, we will announce in August the theme for our 2020 personal essay publishing project. In 2018, we released Bearing Up, this year, Exploring. Finally, Randall, where can we find the books to read and how do authors submit to the next anthology? Your listeners can learn more about Exploring and the personal essay publishing project at danielboonfootsteps.com. Thank you, Landis. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. All right, we're back with uh, Mark DeCastreek, and we're talking about uh, his book, Hidden Scars, which is the most recent uh, book in his Sam Blackman mystery. Mark, before the break, we were talking about Mysteries Within a Mystery. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the Sam Blackman series usually uh, starts with uh, something that occurs in the present, but as they investigate it, they realize it has seeds in the in the past. And um, and, and in the series, we've done things like had a mystery that involved uh, Carl Sandburg, hmm. something that was found with the Connemara Farm where he, where he lived in right outside of Flat Rock, North Carolina. Uh, and did, did this take uh, root because of your very first idea, which took you back to the 1920s with that, you know, the, the original hearse that went back. And so you had, you had this idea of connecting the past to the present. I did. And, mm-hmm. and it helped me learn things about the region up there. Even though I grew up there, there were stories that I had uh, been uh, unaware of. And, uh, and also, you know, your editor has a say in that. And she mm-hmm. really liked the, the past coming alive in the, in the present. So 
Uh, not maybe every story is going to be forced in that direction, but so far I've been able to come up with something in the past that lent itself to uh, manifestation in the present. So let's talk about uh, this historic mystery in the context of the place itself. I think the listeners may be surprised to learn, some may know, some may not, about Black Mountain and the college that was there. Uh, what year was it? In the 40s, I believe it No, was? it actually started in 1933. 33, uh-huh. okay. And so we had some renowned scholars that attended this college, and they were all considered, what, communist at the time or something? Yeah, they were, they were escapees <laughs> from um, Nazi Germany. Uh, they had been in the, uh, the Albers, a couple that came, had been in the Bauhaus, which has obviously had tremendous influence on design and architecture in the 20th century. The school was started by uh, some professors from a college in at Florida who refused to take a loyalty oath and mm-hmm. were fired. And so they came up to brought some students with them and rented out uh, a, a campground. That that's was where that used. that's where that idea came from. I think it's not that they were communists, but they fell under suspicion and right. because they were operating in this area and people didn't understand. What was going on in, That's the, right. in the backwoods of North Carolina? And Hit- Hitler had claimed that the Bauhaus was run by communists, and so that was his excuse to move in on it, and, and these people were able to get out before that mm-hmm. uh, hammer came down. So. And, so, and so the character in the opening scene that you read before the break, uh, which calls and thinks her brother's been murdered, uh, she's talking about a brother many, many years ago, right? Almost 70 years ago. That's the surprise. The trail is kind of cold, right? It's a little cold. Like the Ice Age has has returned. Yeah, and and yet, so, and then in in the book, there's actually a movie being shot on site at this location, and they're trying to recreate some of the things that are going on back at the time at that college. And then somebody else dies, right? That's right. And that's in the present. That was the device, because how do you get a 70-year-old case to be relevant today and... uh, and also involve the history of Black Mountain College in a current way. So I use the movie as a device uh, to sort of have this history resurrected in the present time and, and a murder in the present time uh, look like it could be linked to the murder in the past. So we've got this scene. It's on page 130 and 131 uh, of Hidden Scars, which um, kind of brings into play uh, this this mystery of the past. Why don't, uh, why don't you read from the, You want to set that up anymore? I'll set it up very, yeah. very quickly. Uh, as they investigate the cr- crime in the past, uh, they try to track down people who knew uh, Violet Baker, the young thing who was only 80. Uh, she was 11 when her brother returned from World War II, and he enrolled in the, in the college. Um, and then he died under suspicious circumstances. She thinks he's murdered. They have no proof whether he was murdered or not. Uh, but they start tracking down some people who knew him. Uh, one of them is now a famous dancer, which is uh, true. There were famous dancers that came out of that company. The other one is a, is a writer. And so they have found a copy of the book written by a woman, uh, Leah Rosen, who had actually been a survivor of a concentration camp. And she had, was at Black Mountain College at the same time as, my, uh, uh, as the murder victim uh, was. And she wrote a book called uh, Letters from Camp, which this is fictional, but sounds like it could be a good book. It was a composite of letters as so if they right, were written you're writing, you're writing books within books, too, right? It is. It's a book within book, and yeah. it's supposed to have a different style then. So Nikayla, Sam's partner, uh, brings him the book to take a, a look at, and, uh, and it starts this way. Uh, she shows him on her iPad an image that's the dust jacket 
for Letters from Camp. So it was the dust jacket for Letters from Camp, the book written by Leah Rosen that L.A. Johnson, the dancer, kept in her bedroom. It was available as an e-book, Michaela said. Let me pull up the last letter. She swiped the screen and brought up the index. She touched the final entry. The chapter heading was Letter from Paul. Read it, Nikayla said. It's not very long. I'll start some pasta boiling and we can have supper here. I read it, and then read it again. I scrolled through the other chapters, each a letter from an individual who's in the death camp. The letters served as a literary motif that not only shared camp experiences, but the hopes and dreams of those who would be gassed or shot and then incinerated by the Nazi war machine simply because of their ethnic heritage or religious beliefs. Some were men, some women, some even children. The letters never mentioned a specific camp like Treblinka or Auschwitz, but rather encompassed all of them in what the writers simply referred to as the camp. Except for Paul's letter. His was addressed to those who will not believe, and the author was an American soldier liberating Dachau. He described the horrors he witnessed and the inhumanity of humanity that portended more letters would be written from camps of the future, both physical and psychological, camps that would be created by hatred and bigotry. The last paragraph was short, yet powerful. What is the difference between life and death? One breath, the final intake, the final exhale, and then not another. The air in this place is full of final breaths. How many were a prayer? How many were a release of pain? How many a quiet surrender to oblivion? I breathe them in even as they scar my lungs. Those breaths, those last gasps, I feel them now inside me, so many that I cannot breathe, so filled with them that there is no room for my own breath. I live on that threshold between life and death, breathless from the hidden wounds that others refuse to see. All right, Mark, you're pulling us in with the with the plots here. Uh, the, the the listeners are gonna have to go out and buy your book now. Sound <laughs> <laughs> fine with me. <laughs> How are you? All right. So 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 this Black Mountain thing is it relevant today? Is uh, actually, you know, the, there's a museum in, in actually two locations in Asheville uh, for Black Mountain College, and there are lectures and exhibits of work that came th- through that college and the influence it's had. So. In many ways, it's more popular today than it was back then. It, it actually, in the late 40s and in the 50s, became investigated by the FBI. I think J. Edgar Hoover w- was convinced that it was a nest of communists, and, and um, it eventually closed in 1957, but its legacy has endured since then. All right, another good book and another uh, good series. Uh, we're going to do now, Mark, something we're doing in season uh, three called the author-to-author segment, and uh, these are authors from season one and two who've uh, thrown some questions out for me to throw at the authors of this season. So starting with Nora Gaskin, Nora, Nora appeared in season two of the podcast. She's the founder, editor, and publisher of Leicester Books. She's stewarded more than 20 books into publication. She edited uh, the Carolina Crimes, uh, 21 Tales of Need, Greed, and Dirty Deeds, and she's written a couple of suspense books. Um, so here are a couple of her questions. Uh, is there a moment in the writing process that gives you special joy? There is, and it's usually when a scene works that you didn't think was going to work <laughs> the it's, way it did. It's not the end? <laughs> no, it's not the end. There is a certain joy to the end, yes, but, okay. uh, 
But it, it is if you were if you were kind of stuck or right. you didn't see a way forward, and then suddenly, and it may be something you read, it may be something somebody says that's completely unrelated to your story. Right. But the heavens open up and the light comes down, <laughs> and uh, and you could see where you're headed. All right, another question from Nora. Elmore Leonard's famous bit of advice to writers is, quote, try to leave out the parts readers skip, close quote. How do you know what those parts are? <laughs> uh, well, I have a wife. Yeah. <laughs> is, she, is she one of your readers? Uh, she, she usually reads after I've done the first draft, uh, okay. not in progress, but after she's done the first blog. And I'm, I'm a big believer in, in reading aloud, you know, write mm-hmm. a section and then read it aloud, and that lets mm-hmm. you know if you're kind of bored by the – by the end of it, you're hearing it differently. That's it. Uh, Leonard, uh, I mean, Elmore Leonard also has a great thing where his characters fight for survival because if he's not interested in them, he kills them <laughs> off. And so I've always thought that was a good bit of advice too. Not only kill yeah. off the stuff people don't read, but kill off the characters that people they, aren't they, interested in. They don't care in. about. That's yeah. right. Okay. Uh, all right. Last question from Nora, and then uh, we've got another author here. Uh, Nora Gaskin believes that storytelling, fiction or nonfiction, is where we find and share our humanity. What does storytelling mean to you? It means uh, trying to put meaning on things that are uh, seem meaningless to us. That uh, There's a great quote by uh, Tom Clancy you, you may or may not be familiar with, it. at least it's attributed to him, and he asked this question, what is the difference between fiction and reality? Mm-hmm. And his answer is, fiction has to make sense. <laughs> and I think storytelling is a way we try to make yeah. sense of the right. world, and that encompasses our humanity, like she said. So I'm a, I'm a firm believer in that. And, and that's probably why you engage in some research to bring some realism to your fiction, right? Right. Yeah, okay. All right, so Kathy Pickens, uh, you, you probably know Kathy. I she, do know Kathy. Kathy is a publisher weekly called Kathy's First Mystery, Southern Fried, an assured debut, a cozy with some sharp edges. She's won lots of awards, been president of lots of things related to mystery writers. Kathy uh, also appeared in season two of the podcast, uh, and she's writing some true crime now. Um, She says, here's some questions I'd love or hate to be asked. What's the oddest or funniest or scariest encounter you've had with the reader in person or virtually? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Gosh, that might be hard. It is kind. Of, it is kind of hard. Uh, I, I tell you, the scariest was. It wasn't a book in any of the series. It was for middle grade students, and my mm-hmm. daughter had me uh, come up to her class. She was in uh, Arlington, Virginia, teaching, mm-hmm. and they had read uh, a, a book of mine, and they were going to interview me. And as soon as I walked in, this group of little fifth graders got between <laughs> me and the exit and went off. Why did you kill off Kathy? You know? so, they were mad at and you. And it was like Kathy yeah. was like in her yeah. late 80s. Yeah. But, you know, she, they liked uh, Kathy. Oh, they did yeah. like her. Yeah. And uh, I took yeah. that as a compliment, though I was a little yeah. afraid I wasn't going to get out of there alive. Uh, uh, so here, here's, here's another question. She's obviously speaking some personal experience here. What do you secretly or not so secretly wish that your significant other, family, or friends would do for you when you're deep in a project? I think some of it is realizing that though I have this glazed look in my f- eye and my uh-huh. mind is wandering, I'm yeah. not ignoring yeah. them. Um, it's it's an excuse to daydream, and, and you have to be careful because I can't carry that around with me the entire right. time. And sometimes as a, as a writer, you're living parallel worlds, your character's world and, and your own world, and I've got to make sure that I'm paying attention to my own own world and and part of it is your significant other my family 
giving me a little room to err in yeah. that balance. I, I think Kathy's flipping it around here. I got to ask her about everything's okay at home. She says, "Okay, considering how you treat others in your life, would you like to live with or be related to a writer?" <laughs> <laughs> well, I, probably not. My yeah. daughter actually is a, is a writer. Writes yeah. children's books and, and middle grade books and. Yeah. Uh, uh, she and I have work on different schedules. I tend to kind of write everywhere. She'll kind of let things simmer for a while and then burst it out in a in a speed mm-hmm. speed writing thing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it, it is helpful to have a writer in the family that kind of understands. Understands. Because when you get in that zone, sometimes you ignore other deadlines and picking up things that need to be picked yeah. up. And time goes by. Time goes know? by. All right. Final from uh, Kathy Pickens. Uh, how does your real life as a writer? differ from the fantasy ideal life you had in mind when you started writing uh actually one thing is i've gotten older my characters haven't the the nice Uh, thing about fiction is i can make my characters younger smarter and better looking than me and then when i look in the mirror in the morning i realize my life is quite diverged from my characters well this kind of gets segue just a little bit about mystery writing generally and then we've got one final reading uh, today mark um what you've taught mystery writing uh you taught at unc charlotte uh, you've taught other courses it, can you give us sort of a, what makes for a good mystery i think uh one thing you have to do as a mystery writer is play fair with your reader because a, a mystery reader comes in with a certain amount of expectations that they may have the chance to solve the crime as well with your detective and if you um bring the uh in the solution if you bring the, the, the culprit in and he comes out of left field, and you really haven't mm-hmm. seen or heard of him or her enough to H- do Hadn't it. given him a chance. You no, just that's th- not. Th- threw it on the page. Or if it's it. arbitrary, if, it, if uh, you could be the killer, but with a, just a small change in detail, I could be the killer, then the reader's going to feel like that wasn't fair either. There's a, another quote I like. I, most of the things I say are things that I didn't originate, <laughs> but I've liked. Well, well, at least you can remember them. It's, yeah. a, <laughs> it's that uh, in telling the story, you don't want the end to be predictable like if on page 50 i thought you were the killer and on page 400 i never wavered from that and voila you are indeed the killer then it really wasn't enough of a challenge it was too predictable but it needs to be inevitable when Mm -hmm. that resolution comes that is the only way it could have happened and been resolved and i think that makes for a strong strong mystery it's kind of like a pyramid with the options winnowing down as you come down to to make the final revelation of, of who the uh, villain of the piece was. I'm trying to remember which author said this. Uh, I heard it somewhere. He said uh, he, he's got a little purple prose in his writing. It takes him a while to solve his mysteries, and someone came up to him and said, well, I figured out on page 150 who did it. And he said, well, good for you, because I didn't know at that time. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so when you're writing the mystery, do you uh, ascribe to the theory that you, you need to know how it's going to end before you begin in order to construct a good mystery? I think I think you need to know who the villain is because you're telling two stories. You're telling mm-hmm. the villain's story, which is the, the motive that's uncovered, and then you're telling the detective's story as he uncovers the villain's motive. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. You, you pretty much near the, near the top of it. Sometimes you can start with a scene that you just really captivates you and you want to start and launch out. I don't outline very much, maybe just a, a couple chapters mm-hmm. a, ahead so I have an idea of where I'm going. Because part of the fun of writing is the spontaneity of discovering stuff right. yourself. You, know, you talk to most writers, which you do uh, a lot. Mm-hmm. I would think that's a common thing that they discovered something in the process. The story was out there. 
in the well, ether, and they were, able, they were able to find it and blaze the trail so the reader could follow. John Gresham says, you know, he knows what's going to happen on the very last page when he writes the very first word on the first page. A lot of people say bullshit, but uh, <laughs> but then again, you know he's been doing it long enough. Right, he, you know right. maybe he does, but then some would say, well, that kind of takes the fun out of it a little bit. You know to know exactly what's going to happen, then it sounds more like work to get there, right? Right, yeah, because yeah. you're executing something that's already been already the been, joy's gone out yeah, of it. Yeah, in yeah, a yeah. Because uh, part of it is trying to come home, and you go in there, and I remember my wife was asking me when I wrote the first book. She came home. I came home, and she said, "Where are you going tonight?" And I said. I'm going to go find out what happens next because uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know. Uh, uh-huh. All right, well, heroes and villains, you got to have them uh, to make a, a good story work. You've got to have the conflict. How do you make them believable? And uh, you know, you need, do you need to put in as much into the villain as you do into the hero? Oh, you, yeah, the, the villain measures the uh, capacity and, and uh, strength of the hero. Because if he's going up against a paper villain, then that's not as nearly intriguing mm-hmm. or exciting. Uh, I think it was, I know, again, another quote from somebody else, but I, I think it was Margaret Marin said that, uh, as a mystery writer in North Carolina, that every hero should have some flaws and every villain should have some virtues. Right. And so I think the trick is to, to make them real rounded People gotcha. and it, yeah. there, you may have sympathy for a villain at, at times in the piece, but then at the end, the just desert should be measured out. All right, well, you wrote a. We're going to finish up, Mark, with a little short piece that you wrote. It's uh, from a book called 27 Views of Charlotte. Um, you were asked, amongst other writers in Charlotte, to write uh, a story, and you decided to write a story called A Sense of Place. And just to sort of set this up, let's talk about the place for a minute. Um, this place meant something to you and your family because you would go visit it as a child, right? That's uh, right. It was, um, the, the story is what I would call creative nonfiction. It's uh, a real family. My family married into that family. As a kids, we would come down to their farm, which was off Little Rock Road. It's all under the airport now, but this family had gone back to their land came from a grant from the king that's how long they had been there and uh and we would come down in the summers my two brothers and i and visit our cousins and they had a farm and this is uh this is something that that happened uh the fiction part is the revelation of when the uh, thing that was going to occur was told to the rest of the family but Mm -hmm. i knew the characters pretty well enough that i could have imagined this actually being the way it it went down um all right, Mark, so this last piece uh, takes about eight minutes to read, but it's, it's, it's a great little story, and it does give a sense of place, and it it tells us how uh, how old Charlie, who used to work the farm, ended up in the circus. Charlie was one of five siblings that lived in the, uh, single siblings that lived in the farmhouse, and he never had a tractor. He plowed with horses up to his dying day, <laughs> and people would, traffic would back up on Little Rock Road, people watching him work the field, and he met yeah. some circus people and that's this is about yeah, his this relationship is, with the circus 15 people. minutes of fame yeah. is it okay. that's right, All right okay. here, let's hear about charlie i don't know how he met the circus people someone maybe a friend from church who worked at the old coliseum on independence boulevard passed charlie's name along to them the man and woman were foreign is all i remember they had some slavic last name jam full of consonants they needed a handler for their horses during the two weeks they were in charlotte and Charlie was recommended. The husband and wife team were acrobats on horseback, and at times they performed on four horses abreast. I doubted if Charlie had ever been to a circus, but he knew horses, and that was a bond transcending cultural differences. 
For every performance, Charlie held the horses just outside the ring where the man or woman could spring atop them. Charlie bought new bib overalls for the occasion and seemed just as proud as the riders in their gold sequin costumes. Two weeks working with the circus should have been adventure enough, but it didn't stop there. Charlie invited his employers to the farm to see his plow horses, and something about the place captured their fancy. Maybe it was all Charlie, his sincerity, his love for horses regardless of pedigree. Anyway, the husband and wife asked if they could train there during the off-season. They toured with the smaller regional circuses that booked cities outside those covered by Ringling Brothers, and they concentrated their performances during the winter when the Ringling Brothers troupe quartered in Florida. Charlie's new friend set up a circus ring behind the barn, complete with the aerial rigs for practicing flips and complicated dismounts. But they were there when my brothers and I came for our annual summer holiday. Our two cousins, Billy and Betty Jane, could hardly wait to show us their dream come true. How many kids can boast of a real circus in their backyard? Their performers practiced early morning and evening to avoid the heat. We'd lie in the pasture, sucking on grass stems and watching the woman with long blonde hair turn somersaults and backflips. The exciting moments came when she would shed the harness and balance on two galloping horses, arms outstretched as if wings, hair blowing in the wind. She looked like a goddess in the golden sunlight. We would break out in spontaneous applause when she executed a particularly spectacular trick and gasp in horror on those occasions when our gold goddess toppled from the steeds and sprawled in the dust. Charlie always ran for the horses, and the husband would kneel beside his wife, first listening to a stream of foreign words we didn't understand, but knew were bad, and then calmly asking what went wrong and would she want to go back into the safety rig. Sometimes she did, other times she didn't, but she always, always got back up on the horses. Those circus people, as the sisters called them, lived in a caravan trailer behind the barn. At first they kept to themselves, but after a week they began bringing iced tea and lemonade up to the house in the afternoon. That earned them an invitation to the dinner table, dinner being served at high noon every day but Sunday when church delayed the meal to one. Then extra towels were laid out in the bathroom for washing up, and the final measure of acceptance was the offer of a tub bath on Tuesdays and Fridays. In the evenings, Ruth, Irma, and May would come out after the supper dishes had been washed to watch the practice. They'd sit in their cotton dresses on three lawn chairs placed arm to arm. Joe spread a blanket for us kids and then fetched a watermelon from the field across the fence. About the time dusk forced the circus people to quit for the day, the lightning bugs would rise up from the grass and create a twinkling universe underneath the blossoming stars. We'd catch them in jars until my uncle's whistle came from across the pasture, signaling our day was over. Sometimes a late afternoon or evening thunderstorm would send us scurrying for the safety of the farmhouse. If the winds weren't blowing too hard, we'd sit out on the side porch behind the protection of the screened walls and listen to the old folks talk of the past. The three sisters squeezed together in a glider and they set a slow back and forth rhythm that flowed with the languid conversation. Joe and Charlie sat in rocking chairs, Charlie always near the screen door, and the creak of their wooden rockers and the squeak of the glider's springs created a musical lullaby that mingled with the soft whispery voices. It was on a Friday night, the last Friday before Mom and Dad were driving down the mountain to get us, when the news was sprung. The woman came from the bathroom with her hair wrapped in a towel and a red robe gathered around her muscular body. The sound of rockers and gliders stopped in unison, as if a conductor's baton had waved them into silence. True, she wore fewer clothes when she performed in the circus, but that was more like a fancy bathing suit. 
Here she stood in shocking proximity to two bachelor men and their purer-than-pure sisters. The breeze of the advancing storm rose and threatened to lift the lower corner of the robe. I looked at the women in this glider. Their eyes grew as large as crab apples, and for once their cataracts didn't impede their vision. The circus later nonchalantly pressed the robe to her thigh and turned away from the wind. Charlie, she said, emphasizing the second syllable, I am so happy. Stefan has told me you are coming with us. We all looked at Charlie. The woman could have been standing there nude or lying dead, and we would have all still looked at Charlie. Irma chirped like an injured bird. Charlie's face went as red as the forgotten robe, as red as the center of a vine-ripened watermelon. He stared down at his hands like he had just discovered them. The bony knuckles whitened as he gripped the arms of the chair. Thinking about it, he mumbled, after the crop's in, thinking about it. You'll love the circus, said the woman, oblivious that the porch had become as somber as a funeral parlor. It's like, it's like, she hesitated, groping for the right English word. It's like your family. Like our family, I thought. My own family? The idea seemed so crazy. What could we do in a circus? Thinking about it, repeated Charlie, and started slowly rocking. I'd better get dressed and back to the trailer before the storm comes, the woman said. The storm was coming, all right. Joe was the first to break the painful silence. I'll run you kids home in the truck. Get in before the rain. He stood up and looked at me to follow. I was ten, old enough to know I didn't want to be there when the words started pouring. I nodded to my brothers, and we politely said goodbye. My cousin Billy, who must have been five, started to protest, but Joe reached down and pulled him to his feet so swiftly that the cry died in his throat. Charlie held his ground. For eight weeks that winter, he traveled with the circus. And then we wound up getting to see him on television on the Big Top show during that journey he made with the circus people. And Charlie was the first person that I actually knew who I ever saw on television. So this is a place that was part of your life. It's part of the, and it was part of Charlotte's life. It was part of the county. And now Mecklenburg County, I don't know if you can, how many farms you can find on Mecklenburg certainly, County soil these days. Certainly not that close in. Yeah. Not that close in. Well, Mark, this has been great. I want to um, thank you for coming on the show and also uh, ask uh, you where where we can find your, your work. Do you have a website? I have a website. It's uh, markdecastric.com, Park Road Books. have been very good to yep, uh, yep. keep stock of my books. So if you yeah, drop very, by very them good the Park to us Road too. Shopping don't, Center. Don't forget Park Road Books. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sally and company are great to, to, to mm-hmm. have in our city. Uh, uh, any parting words for a uh, would-be mystery writer out there who's thinking about tackling this genre? I think it's be persistent. Yeah. You know, read a lot, look at the mysteries that are popular, and uh, understand the structure of how the stories are told, and and then be persistent. Well, you've certainly been persistent. 18 novels is, is persistent. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get one right one of these days. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mario, this has been great. A lot of fun. Appreciate you coming on the show. And, oh, my uh, pleasure. And giving voice to your written words. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. Next week, we welcome Abigail DeWitt, author of News of Our Loved Ones, a novel that begins in June 1944 with the Allied invasion of France and leaves some family members in Normandy with only hours to live and others in Paris looking for news of their loved ones. If you liked our show, please tell your friends and please leave a review on Apple Podcast. Reviews are like the gasoline that drive traffic to the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, which is free, on Apple Podcast or wherever you like to get your podcast. Our social media links, if you're into that sort of thing, 
or at our website, charlottereaderpodcast.com. If you have feedback or an idea for an author to be on the show, you can email us at our contact page on the website. And authors are welcome to submit to be on the show on the author page. If you sign up for our email list at our website, thank you for that, we will give you a free ebook, a work of fiction written by your host. And by the way, if you do sign up for our email list, we promise not to spam you. That takes way too much time. We'll just send you periodic updates about the show. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>